Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 9 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read that passage in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one from the pews ahead of you. That is, if you don't have a Bible today, you may take it. If you don't have a Bible at all, please take it and turn me to 1 Samuel chapter 19. You can take that Bible with you if you don't have one home with you. We would love for it to be a gift to you. Um, remember that when we turn to the scriptures, uh, this one book that we have, the Bible, is divided into 66 smaller books, and those books are divided into chapters. Those are the big numbers on the pages, or the chapters, and then those chapters are divided into verses. Those are the smaller numbers on the pages. Uh, they're not original. Those numbers are not original. They were added in the Middle Ages or so, so that when some preacher stands up and says, turn to 1 Samuel 19, we're all in the same place. So, um, anyway, God's Word. It's wonderful. Uh, Before we read what was written here, I want to introduce you to a young family from Minneapolis. Uh, Tony Reinke wrote about this uh, family this week. Jameson and Catherine Pals, and then their three children, Ezra, Violet, and Calvin. Uh, One year ago, this past Monday, July 31st, all five of them were killed together in a car accident. Uh, Jameson and Catherine were both 29, Ezra was 3, Violet was 23 months, and Calvin was 2 months old. Uh, They were in an accident. They were driving from Minnesota to Colorado. They were going to Colorado because they were going to complete the last phase of their training in preparation for a move to Japan where they were going to share the gospel. Um, On the highway a truck driver got distracted and ran into the back of their car and all five of them died. Now, you know the looming question, right, that comes to our minds, the front of our minds when we, when we uh, uh, hear about this story. Why did God take this family home like that uh, before allowing them to go to the mission field? They wanted to go to Japan. This is one of the most gospel-poor countries in the world. They were on their way there. And how could this be any sort of a plan that in the world that our sovereign God rules? Now, if you know enough to ask that question, you know also that our ability to answer it or even understand the answers to those questions is somewhat limited. And we have before us a chapter in the Bible that actually makes questions like that harder to answer. 1 Samuel 19, the theme of this chapter, is that God protects His people. It's what He does. It's what these verses teach. It's not hard to find. You'll see it in the text probably as we read it. God protects His people. And some of you, when you hear that, your first response is to say, Really? Let's read this chapter together this morning, okay? I want, I, want to, I want you to hold several threads together. When we try to unpack this story, we have to keep, take the story as it is, chapter 19, together with the section that it's in, this conflict between King Saul and the king-to-be David. We have to keep that in mind. We also want to keep in mind, though, the thread of how does this apply in the rest of the Bible and in uh, how we live uh, today. So uh, let's read, and uh, Danny, you can raise the screen, and, and uh, that'll be great. All right. 1 Samuel 19, verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and and warned him, 
My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took his oath, this oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Once more, war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, If you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, Oh, he's sick, he's ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, Bring him up to me in my bed so I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michael told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Nioth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is at Nioth at Ramah, so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Saku, and he, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? Over at Nioth in Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Nioth at Ramah, But the Spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Nioth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all day, all that day and all that night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Uh, The theme of this chapter is that God protects his people, specifically here in the life of his servant David. And he uses a number of means to protect David from a murderous Saul. Uh, He uses Jonathan, his friend, Michael, his wife, David's own dexterity at avoiding spears. And the Holy Spirit himself enters this uh, battle here to protect David. But since we're going through the book of uh, 1 Samuel, we also know that David is no ordinary servant of God. He is God's anointed king. You understand, don't you, from certain angles why Saul hates him, right? David's going to take his place. And, and all he sees David is a threat. He hates him. 
And in this whole section of, of Scripture, we see this conflict between Saul and, and David. God's Spirit has left Saul and is now with David. And he, he's angry and frustrated and bitter and jealous. There are two tracks in this passage. There's going to be in all these chapters, two tracks. Um, one of them focuses on God's protection. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. The other track, though, is on Saul's rejection of God's anointed. Look what happens here in this passage when he sets himself up against David's king, God's king. When we meet together on Sunday mornings, uh, people come, I know this, people come with all kinds of different perspectives on the Lord Jesus. Those who are members of our congregation, we agree together that Jesus is God's son, that he's our savior. He's the one by whom, uh, one whom by his death and resurrection reconciles all who believe to God. That's the center of what we believe as members of our congregation. But it might not be what you believe about the Lord Jesus. In this case, this chapter is here to warn you. Here is what happens uh, to God's anointed king. Here is what happens to Saul when he rejects God's anointed king. It's very fierce. Saul's, Saul's objection to, to David is fierce and the effects are terrible. When we read this in the overall story of the Bible, God's anointed is Jesus himself. What happens to those who oppose God's anointed? Well, there's two tracts in this chapter, and this first one is a, a warning. Maybe it's specifically a warning for you. And, and here's how I want to I summarize it here. You cannot escape, you, sorry, you cannot oppose God's anointed king and win. You cannot oppose God's anointed king and win. In fact, it's the surest path to personal destruction. There's lots of ways to see this in the text. I want to focus on two scenes, though, here. The first one is in verses 9 and 10 of this passage. We have this scene where Saul is sitting on his throne with a spear in his hand, and David is sitting before him playing. This has happened before in the book of Samuel. We, we've seen what happens. It doesn't end well there either. It's, it's kind of an emblematic scene in the book of Samuel. In fact, it's so important as the story goes on that Rembrandt painted it twice. He painted this picture uh, twice. There's a deliberate contrast in the text, and it has to do with what is in their hands. Saul is sitting in his house, and he has in his hand a spear. David is sitting before him, and he has in his hand a lyre. And, and the Hebrew text says that David was playing the lyre with his hand. Saul has a spear in his hand. David has a lyre in his hand. Think with me about this here for a minute. David has just returned from battle, and he won. He won a spectacular victory. And he sets his spear down outside the palace and he picks up his lyre. He's a man, Peter Leithart points this out, who is so grounded by God that he can both fight and rest and worship. This seems to be a rare combination. I know people who are really good at fighting or really good at working and getting things done, but don't ever really rest or worship. And I know people who are really good at resting... In fact, that's all they do is they rest. But they can't work hard. Your life has to have a lot of divine ballast for you to be able to be ferocious at work or at war and to be uh, restful and worshipful at peace. Well, that's David. 
Saul, on the other hand, is inside the most secure house in all of Israel, but he's armed for war. Saul should have gone out to war, and he didn't, and instead he brought it directly into his house. Now, I hesitate to even go down this path for just a minute, because is there anything that would happen in the White House that would surprise you? But, but just imagine, just imagine here, you go to the White House and you go through all the security and you see all the armed men and all the, the officers and soldiers and secret service men and you walk into the Oval Office and there the president sits behind his desk and he's got a shotgun in his hand. Right? It would be very strange. Who are you afraid of? What? what? You're in the most secure house in the whole world and you're armed here. Saul, what are you doing with a spear in your hand? Saul didn't go out to war when he should have, and he actually ends up bringing war into his house. This is a broken chapter. Everything in this chapter is broken. Everything goes wrong. Jonathan has to choose between his father and his friend. Saul makes him choose between his father and his friend. And Jonathan chooses David, even though the text over and over again into the first couple of verses says, Jonathan, his son, Jonathan, his son, Jonathan, his son. Then there's Michael, Michael who lies to her father. Those who study ethics really struggle here. Um, actually, this is a scene I think that's worth thinking about for a minute. It's a wonderful scene in this story. Um, hang on to your thought that, of the, the brokenness that Saul introduces into his, his family and move for a minute to think with me about, about Michael. She's really one of the tragic characters in this whole book. Last week, when, when, David invi- or when Saul invited David to marry Michael, we get insight. Saul thought that he said, oh, I hope maybe she'll be a snare to him. That is, maybe her commitment to worshiping idols will dilute David's devotion to Yahweh God. And apparently she has idols in her house. We read that here. Which seems strange to me. Why did David allow his wife in his house to worship idols? I don't understand that. I'm not sure why he would have done that. Uh, There are psalms that talk about how uh, uh, David is not going to worship idols like the people around him, apparently the people he shares a bed with, too. Hmm. Michael and and her father actually share a lot in common. Uh, When Samuel the prophet had told Saul, um, you're disobeying God and that sin is as bad as idolatry. And then we come to chapter 19 and we find out that Michael is an idolater. We find out that Saul and Michael have a lot in common here. And yet, yet, Michael is in the great tradition of lying women in the Old Testament that God uses to save his people. This is a great ethical dilemma. Exodus, the book of Exodus tells us about Egyptian midwives who told Pharaoh that the Israelite women give birth so fast that they don't have a time to uh, kill the babies during labor like he commanded them. In the book of Joshua, Rahab told the government officials of Jericho that the Israelite spies had already left when she knew that they were hiding in her house. Those lying, rescuing women. You should talk to your teenager about that over lunch. Try to figure that out, right? You'll have to. My teenagers won't let that go. Now, even better here, think about Rachel. Rachel in the book of Genesis. Remember how uh, when you read the Old Testament, the, the, the stories are built on patterns, repeated elements. Um, the more you read the Bible, the better you are at reading the Bible because you'll recognize some of these patterns in the stories. 
So in the book of Genesis, David's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Jacob, is fleeing with his wives and his children from his father-in-law, Laban. And Laban catches up to them, and he wants to know where his idols are. Oh, there's a connection. Idols. Wants to know where his idols are. And Rachel, Rachel is Jacob's wife and Laban's daughter. And she lies to her father about the idols in order to protect her husband. Does it sound like this story at all? Even if you, if you want to connect it even more here, this story makes a big deal about how she covered the idol with garments and with goat hair. There's another story in the Bible where Jacob used garments and goat hair to lie to his father Isaac. You read that and you think, does anybody in this family know how to tell the truth? Michael, in this story, comes to a terrible end. Being married, not in this chapter, we'll see that in a few weeks. Being married to David, she, should, she could have given birth to the boy who would become the next king, right? David's going to be king, his son will be king. Michael could have been the mother of the king, but that's not what happened. Like her father, she has no dynasty either. It's one of the great tragic characters in this story. But this whole mess, this whole sordid mess, flows from the antagonism, the rage, the jealousy... The disobedience of Saul himself. He is the author of this chaos. You will never win when you oppose God's anointed. In fact, it's the, person, the fastest path to personal destruction. And your own personal destruction will overflow and inevitably hurt the people around you. Will inevitably affect them. I want to turn that upside down for just a minute if I can. If this is true then it also means that the best way for you to bless your family is for you to cultivate your own allegiance to the Lord Jesus. If opposition to Him leads to personal destruction that infects those around you, your allegiance to Him is the best way for you to bless those around you. If you're not married yet, and and you'd like to be, if you do not yet have a family but want one, your preparation for blessing your family immensely, actually begins now. Now is the time that your allegiance to the Lord Jesus will begin to take shape. Do the things that young men are supposed to do, in particular, do those things. Get an education if you need it, get a job, get a house, get a reputation as a hard-working person, a man who keeps your word. But preeminent over all of those things, develop a life that's filled with patterns of resolute allegiance. Give regularly. Get some offering envelopes or set up online giving. Serve faithfully. Join Awana. Sign up for the nursery. Nothing's more attractive to young women than a man who works hard Monday through Friday and rocks babies on Sunday. <laughs> Pray diligently. Now these, these, what our culture tells us is that these are supposed to be the years, right, that if you don't have a family, that, that you're supposed to be free to do what you want, right? You're just free. Stay up as late as you want, uh, binge on Netflix, play video games six hours a day, uh, just do what you want, right? That's terrible preparation for blessing a wife and children that God might give you. Terrible preparation. Think about your own life. Are the patterns that you're cultivating right now, are they going to make in the future a life that will bless the family that God may give you? Are are the patterns you're cultivating now going to make a life of blessing to them Harder or easier? Several years ago, I heard a a young single woman. She was 
very involved in our church, a great sermon in our congregation, she said, she's complaining a little bit, she said, just because I'm not married, people assume that I have all the time in the world to help them. Babysit my kids, watch my house, walk my dog, run my errands. Don't people know that I need to rest, that I have a life? I understand that concern. No one wants to be taken advantage of. No one wants to feel like they're taken advantage of. I understand that. But can I, can I remind you gently here that if God provides you with children, they're not going to care if you have to rest or have a life, right? You, you can't go into their room at 3 o'clock in the morning and tell your crying three-month-old, don't you care I have a life? I need to rest. Okay? Babies don't care. Teenagers don't care really either, do they? No. No. I'm 43. I don't care, okay? You know? (laughs) That's the way it is. Get used to it now. Right? Just start now. Now, I'm way afield of the text, right? Uh, Saul brought this war into his own home because of his refusal to honor God's anointed. It was destructive. Now, the second scene that points to Saul's destruction is one of total defeat and involves the Spirit of God. This happens three times at the end of this this chapter here. Saul sends soldiers to capture David, but the Spirit comes on them, they prophesy, and they're unable to continue. So Saul sends, finally Saul goes to himself. This is a strange scene. I don't understand everything that's happening here. So Saul goes to Ramah where Samuel is. Do you remember the last time Saul went to uh, Ramah? He went to find Samuel because he needed help finding his lost donkeys. He stopped by a well that first time to ask for directions, and instead he was anointed king, and then he met prophets with whom he prophesied. Patterns, patterns, patterns. And they asked him in that first time, is Saul among the prophets? And it was wonder. Wow, is Saul among the prophets? Can it be? Wow. Here... Saul's on his way to Ramah. He's looking not for donkeys. He's looking for David. He stops by a well to ask for directions and he is laid flat by the Spirit. And they ask, is Saul among the prophets? Mocking. Is Saul among the prophets? (laughs) Saul takes off his royal robes. He's been stripped by the Spirit of his authority and laid out flat. Robes, robes. Where have we talked about robes before? Samuel told Saul one day, he said to him, um, God is, is, has rejected you as being king. And Samuel walked away from Saul. And as he did, Saul reached out and ripped Samuel's robe and held on to it. And Samuel said to Saul, just like you have ripped my robe, so God is going to rip the kingdom from you. And here Samuel is before the Spirit and he loses his robes. The sign of his royal authority. He loses them. This, this scene is strange. But notice here, without an army or without any weapons, with no battle plan, with no strategizing, apparently no effort at all, God's Spirit lays Saul out. He wins. You cannot oppose God's King and win. The enemies of Jesus found this out too, didn't they? In Mark 11 and 12, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Gospels. I love this scene. Jesus' opponents come before him and very publicly they ask him some gotcha questions. Questions that you're not supposed to be able to answer well. Questions that regardless of how you answer, it's going to make some people mad at you. When they asked Jesus these gotcha questions and he answered all of them without breaking a sweat and when he was done, they were the ones who looked stupid and everybody else was like, Jesus is awesome. They finally arrested him. Their trial strategy falls apart. 
In fact, their trial strategy is so bad that Jesus has to incriminate himself so they can get a conviction. They are helpless before him. In the book of Philippians, the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You cannot oppose him and win. That's why the invitation is always extended to turn to him and trust in him. You cannot defeat him. That's one of the tracks in this passage. The next one, the other track, though, is, is more important to this story as, as it unfolds. It's about God's protection. God protects his people. He protects his anointed king through his friendship with Jonathan. We're going to talk about his friendship with Jonathan next time. He protects God's anointed king through Michael, through Samuel, through, through the Spirit. Now, if you're reading this chapter... And your assumption is, because it ends well for David, and David is fine, that this was easy for him. You're not reading this chapter very well. There's a striking feature of this chapter. Actually, it happens in chapters 18 and 19. We know how everybody around David, what they're thinking and what they're feeling. We know how Saul thinks. We know how Jonathan thinks. We know how Michael thinks. But David, we don't know anything about what he's thinking or feeling in this chapter. Do you understand? David doesn't speak at all in 1 Samuel 19. Um, it, he doesn't write he was afraid. He doesn't say, even, even when it comes to the plan to get David out of the house, Michael's the one who talks. Now the reason that's true in 1 Samuel right here is because David is God's anointed king and he is the test by which everybody else is being evaluated. We can tell what kind of person Saul is. We can tell what kind of person Jonathan is. We can tell what kind of person Michael is because of how they respond to David. So David will become, start acting and, or start uh, speaking and feeling again as the book unfolds. But right now, he's kind of a passive presence in the text. Where would we go to find out how David is feeling right now? We go to the Psalms. Um, listen to what Psalm 59 says. I, th- I think I wrote down some of what Psalm 59 says on your notes here. This, uh, Psalm 59, the superscription to Psalm 59 says when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. Those superscriptions in your Bible, they're very helpful. They're not original. They're probably pretty accurate, but, uh, but uh, there they are. And, and maybe this is what David was thinking when Michael's lowering him from the windows. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from, my, from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me? Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine. Lord, I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. Does that sound like someone who is just dancing around because life's so easy? I don't think he's having a good time. Follow me here for just a minute, right? If this passage teaches that God protects his people, it implies automatically that God's people need protection. Does that make sense? God protects his people. Why does God protect his people? Because God's people need protection. And the, New Test- uh, the rest of the scriptures affirm this over and over again. Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. I'll protect you from the fire and from the flood, God says. Or John 16, listen to what it says. 
Jesus, I have told you these things, he said, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then in Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul writes his long list of things that can happen to God's people. Even death itself cannot separate God's people from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why did he write that promise? Because God's people need protection. And then I I ask, why? Why, instead of rescuing us from the fire and the flood, why doesn't he just stop the fire and the flood before they get to us? Wouldn't that make more sense? Wouldn't that be easier? Why not just put us in places, instead of protecting us, why doesn't God just put us in places where we don't need protection? Seems like he could do that. And I'd like to caution you for a minute here. If your first thought when I say that God protects his people is to say, really? You're reading the Bible very cynically and not very expectantly. Now I know some of it's my fault. I started by talking about that missionary family, that that tragedy. But be careful of reading the Bible cynically. You're supposed to read chapter 19 and say, yes, this is what God does. It's awesome. He protects his people. Just think about the number of ways that God has provided for them and protected them. and What he does rescue them. He uses goat hair in this passage to rescue his people. It's awesome. You're supposed to read 1 Samuel 19 and think to yourself of the 10,000 ways that God has protected you. You probably don't know about 9,995 of them. Several years ago, actually, when we were flying home from candidating at Grace, we were flying uh, from Houston to Dallas. We were supposed to. In the Houston airport, they came on the airwaves uh, and and canceled our flight. Uh, Something was wrong with the plane. God, thank you for protecting me from broken planes. You you have 10,000 examples of that, of ways in which God has uh, protected you, provided for you especially his anointed son. Behold, rejoice, give thanks. That's the point of this portion of David's story. God protects his people. Sometimes, though, it doesn't look like it, right? I don't want to be cynical, but I'd like to be realistic for a few minutes here. Of the the many ways that we could tackle this challenge, I want to point in one direction this morning. Sometimes God puts his people in situations where they learn things about him that they could not otherwise learn. It's what God sometimes does. If it weren't for the fire and it weren't for the flood, there are things about God that you would never learn. And sometimes God puts you there so that you will learn those things about him. It applies to a lot of situations. It applies to not only suffering here, It applies to our dear outreach partners, right? Why does God make them raise support? Why doesn't God make them all independently wealthy, right? So they can go to the church and say, please pray for me. I'm going to go to Brazil and I need you to pray. I don't need your money because of grandfather's AT&T stock, but if you could just pray for me, that'd be great. Why, why Why does he put them in positions where they need to say to people, Please help in this work that I'm doing. Or, or they cry out to God over and over again, God, please provide, please provide. Why does he do that? God puts his people in situations where they learn things about him that they could not otherwise learn. 
I want to prove this by calling four witnesses, briefly. God protects his people. That's true. That's what the passage is teaching. And when that is not immediately clear, it is because in part he is teaching them things that they could not otherwise learn. Here's my four witnesses. Witness number one, David, please come to the stand. Psalm 59, David says, But I will sing of your strength. In the morning I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. Where David had learned that, that God is his refuge, if not for the night that his wife had to lower him down outside of the house? Witness number two, I call Paul to the stand. Paul, one of my favorite verses in 2 Corinthians 1. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. Don't go to Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Where did the Apostle Paul learn not to trust in himself? Asia. He wanted to die. But Asia is where God taught him to trust in him. Witness number three, more contemporary, she died a couple years ago, Helen Rosevere. Do you know Helen Rosevere's story? You should know Helen Rosevere's story. It's worth knowing. uh, Helen Rosevere was a medical missionary in the Congo. She was from Great Britain. She was there in the 60s when the political situation in the Congo just fell apart. She was uh, kidnapped by hostile forces. She was held in captivity for several months. And during those several months, she was beaten and raped repeatedly. Eventually, they let Helen Rosevere go. She returned to Great Britain. Uh, but then she came back to Congo after a couple of years in Great Britain, re- went back to Congo and continued her ministry. She's written several books about her experience. Here's something that she wrote about one scene here in her life. Beaten, flung on the ground, kicked, Teeth broken, mouth and nose gashed, ribs bruised, driven at gunpoint back to my home, jeered at, insulted, threatened. I knew that if the rebel lieutenant did not pull the trigger of his revolver and end the situation, worse pain and humiliation lay ahead. It was a very dark night. I felt unutterably alone. For a brief moment I thought, God had failed me, and in desperation I almost cried out against him, it is too much to pay. In the darkness and loneliness, he met with me. He was right there, a great, wonderful, almighty God. His love enveloped me. Suddenly the why dropped away from me, and an unbelievable peace flowed in, even in the midst of the wickedness. And he breathed the word into my troubled heart, troubled mind, the word privilege. These are not your sufferings. They are not beating you. These are my sufferings. Witness number four, Johnny Erickson Tata. You know her story, don't you? Most of you know it. I mentioned her this morning because this week was the 50th anniversary of the diving accident that uh, made her a quadriplegic. She was 17 years old. She's written a lot about it. All of it's helpful. This is one paragraph from what she wrote. I wish I could adequately describe what it's like when I'm aware of the overwhelming presence and power of God's grace in my life. It's like living above my wheelchair in a strata of heart-splitting joy that comes with God-breathed courage to tackle whatever lies ahead. 
Frankly, I believe that the more aware you are of God's grace, the more joy and courage you will have. That's a very important sentence. I'm going to read it again. Frankly, I believe that the more aware you are of God's grace, the more joy and courage you will have. This raises the question. When are we most aware of God's grace? It isn't when we're riding high with a string of green lights ahead of us and open doors before us. No, it's when we are needy and feeling spiritually impoverished. She wrote this. I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. Do you find that hard to believe? What does Johnny Erickson Tata know about Jesus that you don't know about Jesus? Could it be, this is not central to this passage, I know this, could it be that some of God's greatest work of protection is in protecting his people from themselves? Actually, this is the confession of all of us who will come to the table this morning for the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's table is not for everyone. It's only for those who are followers of Jesus. We come this morning to celebrate Christ's cosmic victory over death and evil and over all the sorrow and pain. His victory is as big as the universe and it is small as the human heart too. I need deliverance from who I am in here. By nature and choice, I am a rebel against God. Who will protect me from what I have done? Who's going to rescue me from what I deserve? What's the fitting sentence for uh, disobedience against an infinitely good God? The things I know I should do, I don't do. And the things that I shouldn't do, that I do. Over and over and over again. Who's going to rescue me from myself? Only Jesus can. He died on the cross, the infinite Son of God, paying the ultimate penalty, dying and rising again. He suffered in my place that I might live again. And the Bible calls all people on earth to turn and trust in this Savior, this Lord Jesus. You're familiar with God's protecting work. Through His Son, He rescues us. He rescues us from His own wrath. And often as we follow him, he protects us from ourselves. All who believe can come to the table. Let's pray, then we're going to sing, and then we'll come. Pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for your great grace to us through the Lord Jesus. You do protect your people. Well, teach us to believe that, to trust in that, to have joy in that. Help us to reflect wisely and well on the fact that you protect us from ourselves, preeminently through the Lord Jesus, also through your sovereign power, your providence, your people, the circumstances that surround us. Fill us with joy, Father, as we think of your good work through your anointed Son, and to your people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.